listeners, and welcome to the NK News podcast recorded here in Seoul on Sunday, March 3rd, 2019. Today, I am joined by former member of the European Parliament, Glenn Ford, to talk about his experience of talking to and with North Korea. But before that, an announcement, the same as usual. Once again, NK News is offering a free year's subscription to one lucky reviewer who reviews our podcast either at iTunes or at one of the other platforms. Also, you can save $50 off your NK News annual subscription by using the code podcast at the checkout. And don't forget, if you like this podcast, please share it with others. We'd like to see if we can beat all the other career-related podcasts before this year is out. Okay. My guest today, Glenn Ford, was a member of the European Parliament from 1984 to 2009. Please uh, do stop me and correct me if I'm wrong. Was that correct so far? I'll ask. You're doing fine so far. He's currently director of Track 2 Asia. That's Track Number 2 Asia, a representative on Labour's National Policy Forum and a member of the Labour Party's International Committee. He is the author of the brand new book, Talking to North Korea, that came out uh, late last year, and an earlier book, North Korea on the Brink, in 2007. He's visited North Korea almost 50 times. Are you up to 50? Have you reached No, 50? I'm still a high 40s. So they keep putting off my next visit. Okay. Uh, keeps being interrupted by people like President Xi, Xi may be coming and uh. Uh, Donald Trump and etc. Uh, and so he's been there almost 50 times as an MEP amongst other professional capacities. So let's start with the beginning. That's a very nice place to start. Tell us about your entry into politics in the UK and also how you came to be involved in international negotiations with North Korea. Well, that's a, that's a nice span. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I was brought up in the Forest of Dean in a, in a mining community. All my male relatives, apart from my father, who worked in a, uh, a, a tin plate works, were coal miners. Uh-huh. And so you were in politics. Uh, you were labor. Uh, I suppose actually getting actively involved was a different was a different issue, but that happened in well university and then uh, in Manchester when I went up there to university, where I became a local councillor and the chairman of the education committee. Were you the first person in your family to go to university? Um, yes, effectively. There we had a remote relative who supposedly went to university, but we're not sure. Ah, me too. So we have that in common. All right. And so, how did you get involved in uh, in you know from sort of local level politics? How did you get involved in a in, on the European level, I mean, I was very active. I was well known as a as a Labour uh, as a Labour councillor. Uh, when I stood for the European Parliament, the local paper's headline was "Glyn gets in." I really stood in an election for the European Parliament, not expecting to win. Labour had done very badly in 1979. We only won 17 seats. Uh, I thought it would be a nice experience to to run as a candidate. I I did. Uh, we thought we were number 36 on the list, which means we had to more than double our representation. Turns out the Labour Party made a miscalculation, and in fact, uh, we were number 32 on the list, and we, we actually won 32 seats. Ah, very good. So, so I just got in with a very small majority. Not quite accident. the smallest. Excellent. I mean, not by accident, but I know... But yes, it was a bit of a shock to everybody, including me, though less so late on in the campaign because we could see we were doing rather well. And then how did you become involved in North Korea? I was teaching at the University of Manchester and researching on science and technology policy. And the result of that, that was before I was elected as an MEP. Mm. And so uh, I was effectively invited to do a lecture tour of Japan in, I think it was 82, uh, on science and technology policy, which I did. 
and some of the people there in, in Tokyo actually rather liked me. So I was actually invited to go back as a visiting professor uh, paid for by Monbusho, the Japanese Ministry of Education. So I was there in, in 83 immediately before I was elected. And so when I got into the European Parliament, uh, one of the areas I was interested in was was Japan. Mm-hmm. And it, it spread from, it kind of spread from there. I remember being in, in, in Tokyo quite early on and uh, a friend of mine who was American married to a South Korean uh, said, yeah, will, will you go to South Korea? There's this guy under house arrest that we word might get executed. Uh, and that's how I met the, the future president, Kim Dae-yong. Ah, oh, right. Uh, and uh, he got me involved with North Korea. I, I knew him you know, from 84 all the way through to, to, to when he died in 2010. And when was your first visit to North Korea? I had a little bit to do with the North Koreans, the embassy in Paris to UNESCO. Uh, and we'd sort of explored the idea of me going, but it never seemed to really work. And so I had actually been to North Korea by 1997. But then they came to see me to say, from the embassy, saying, can you help us get some food aid? We've got a real serious problem of uh, 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 food shortages in, in North Korea. And we need some assistance. This was the time when the European Union was destroying vast quantities of, of beef because of BSE and the rest. So we'll take the beef, we'll, we'll have it. Basically, I said, well, I need to see what the situation is on the ground myself if I'm going to argue the case. So it ended up myself and two Labour colleagues went to Pyongyang in September 1997. It was mm. my first visit. Uh, it was pretty grim, but I could see that uh, we went to the orphanages and the child, uh, children's centres and the rest. I said to them, yeah, you've got to show me the problem. There is absolutely no point taking me around the nice bits of Pyongyang. Right. Uh, I'm not sure there were too many at the time anyway, but uh, so we we did see some pretty grim sights. So we, we travelled around the country, uh, went up to Wichon, which is up in the north centre. Yep. I remember going to a hospital there, which was really pretty pretty you know, awful. Uh, you know, the, the medicines were coming out of you know, bottles that had had the bottoms cut off and, mm. and the rest, the, the ambulance had... Uh, three flat tires and you know, there was no heating so it was pretty all oh, pretty grim i said to them well would you, would you like an official delegation and they said yeah i, mean, I said but you don't mind how we get it and they said no so when we went back we tabled a resolution in the parliament which was passed saying there's a yeah, we believe there was a serious problem in North Korea and demanding that the North Koreans allow an official delegation to visit. And much to the surprise of everybody, I suspect, apart from the three of us who'd been, the North Korean response to this sort of rather snotty letter sent to the government was, yes, fine, send a delegation. Mm-hmm. So I ended up going back as part of the delegation with uh, Leo Tindemans, a former Belgian prime minister, and a guy called uh, Lawrence Brinkhorst, who ended up as an agricultural minister in, in Holland. So... We were the official delegation. It really started from there. Now, you helped form a standing delegation to the Korean Peninsula. Was that when it began or was that sometime later? That was sometime later. I mean, we had this uh, this te- uh, this ad hoc delegation. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Following that, we had two further ad hoc delegations, and I was a member of both. In fact, with Jacques Santer, the, uh, the former president of the European Commission, yeah. and an it- Italian called Gavronsky. And then it was I suggested 
uh, that in 2004, when the new parliament got elected, that we actually turned this into a standing delegation, not with North Korea, but a standing delegation with the Korean Peninsula. As a whole, yeah. Because until then, Korea had been rather enormously stuck in with ASEAN, ASEAN and Korea. We were looking for new delegations to give jobs to the boys. And so I suggested, uh, well, why don't we split this off and make it a Korean Peninsula delegation? And that was created and it's still running now. There was a visit by the Korean Peninsula delegation to North Korea about about two, two three months ago from the European Parliament. Okay, now when, when you um, analyse uh, social or political phenomena or, or international relations, do you use Marxism as your lens through which to see these things? No, I think I'm influenced by the idea that, uh, if you want, it's economics that drives, drives politics but not exclusively, as we can see from looking around the emergence of some of the populist and and racist parties, to be Mm. frank. I mean, as I said, I'm I'm influenced by, if you are, Marxoid ways of thinking, but I wouldn't consider myself a Marxist. Okay, now you've done a lot of um, what people might call a track 1.5 or track 2 meetings with North Korea. Uh, I've had this explained to me recently by Joe Trani that 1.5 is when people on one side are former government officials, when people on the other side are still government officials. That's I'm 1. not 5. even sure I entirely agree with Joe Trani. Okay. I mean, what, track, well, track, track two meetings are between two NGOs on either side. But, of course, with North Korea, there is no such thing as an NGO. They right. represent the government. So that's where the 1.5 comes from. Okay. You don't have to be a former government official, as far as I'm concerned, but you, you probably need to be someone who's got some relationship with government because it's about trying to influence what government does. Okay, now what do you see as the value of 1.5 or track two meetings with uh, with North Korea? Well, I mean, those are the only game in town for a long time. I mean, uh, certainly uh, vis-a-vis well, the United States and even South Korea. I've been engaging in a track, well, I guess all of my work's a bit of a track 1.5, but a more organized uh, track 1.5 for about six years now. Uh, and there was effectively none of this was happening with South Korea or with the United States in any organized way, certainly not at the, the level I was lucky enough to be at because the, the work we've done has been with the party and, of course, in, in North Korea. And, of course, it's the party that makes the decisions, not the foreign ministry. Any of the contacts that most people have are actually with, with the ministers rather than the party itself. Positive things do you believe have been achieved or what dangers have been avoided as a result of all the 1.5 uh, meet, track 1.5 meetings that have been held over uh, well, the years? Well, I think the classic one is probably... Uh, uh, I'm a Kurt Vonnegut fan. If you read Sirens of Titan, the whole purpose of human existence was the invention of the ring camp. Or my, the purpose of my existence was to say to H.R. McMaster uh, that uh, Riso Young took the view that if you pulled out American dependence, it was going to be uh, on the eve of war. And so the North would respond accordingly. Uh, that's recorded in Bob Woodward's book, Fear. Uh, McMaster then stopped Trump pulling out the dependents. So it may be that that's the most useful thing I've ever done. You're talking about uh, family members of United States military yeah. here in South Korea, yeah. who if they were sent home, that would be taken by North Korea as a sign that, okay, war's imminent, coming. Yeah. Uh, imminent, imminent war. Imminent war. So we should strike first. Yeah. Okay. And, and so you believe that that that, that you, you sort of relaying that message on. Somebody in the party told you that? Yeah, yeah, Rizzo Young, who's oh, the Rizzo, head right. of the International Department of the Party. Okay. And I had the opportunity to, to talk to H.R. McMaster in the White House, and mm. Bob Woodward records it in, doesn't mention me by name, but records it in fear uh, as something that 
an indication of dysfunctional nature of the White House because apparently Woodward claims I was not aware of it, but Trump was about to announce that was going to happen. Wow. Okay, well, certainly uh, speaking personally, as a resident of Seoul, uh, I'm quite glad that that didn't happen. I'm very glad it didn't happen for lots of other reasons as well, but uh, (laughs) yes, I'm delighted for the people of Seoul. All right. The Hanoi summit, uh, it just ended four days ago. Were you surprised that it wasn't even as successful, and I use that term lightly, as the Singapore summit of June last year? I was surprised. I was anticipating that it was going to be at least as successful as Singapore, and it will be. It was going to be portrayed as a as a great victory. In retrospect, I think the seeds of its destruction were visible beforehand because it seems to me that uh, largely the United States was asking for the, the North Koreans to do irreversible things in exchange for reversible ones, and that was that apples and pears swap was never going to work. What, what do you mean by that? What, well, what, they, wanted, your... they wanted the. Uh, I mean. They wanted the North Koreans to, if you want, close down Yongbyon and destroy it yep. in exchange for some mitigation of sanctions at the edges, which could be reimposed in the future. But the destruction of Yongbyon reactor, surely, I mean, that's been on the cards, well, you know, uh, since Methuselah was a boy. I mean, we're talking, you know, that back in 94 uh, in the agreed framework and then in 2005. It's never actually been destroyed. Uh, no, well, uh, that's I mean, why we're still here. Well, yeah, fine. Still talking I mean, about it. And the problem is that Trump didn't. Eat, I mean, Kim Jong Un announced that in in, in in the New Year's address in the beginning of 2018. Yeah. He, he he basically said we no longer need to test nuclear weapons or or, or missiles because we have a nuclear deterrent. Right. And what we're going to do is going into into mass production of both. Right. Speed up. Yeah. 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 Logically, the Americans hadn't abandoned producing theater missile defense technologies. Mm-hmm. I mean, at, at the beginning of this year, he actually announced they're going to stop producing more nuclear weapons and guarantee that there were going to be no nuclear proliferation. But Trump didn't even get that in the bag because, I mean, logically, he offered to close Yongbyong, therefore putting a cap on the amount of plutonium that was available to North Korea. But he, he can't close it now. He's got no deal. It would look really stupid to close Yongbyong now, having not got a deal about closing Yongbyong. Okay, but uh, just to go back to the uh, the competing press conferences, that's not the line that I understood from North Korea. Let's just go through that. So both sides obviously trying to pass the buck or the blame onto the other. President Donald Trump said in his solo press conference that North Korea was asking for all sanctions to be lifted, uh, something that the USA was not willing to do just in exchange for the closure and dismantlement of the Yongbyon reactor. Meanwhile, at his midnight press conference, North Korean Foreign Minister Ri Yong-ho said that this is inaccurate, that North Korea only asked for sanctions that were put in place since nine, uh, 2016, those that hurt North Korea's civilian economy and civic life to be raised. And so the, the, the focus in the two press conferences wasn't, do we close Yongbyon, do we not close Yongbyon? The focus was, are all sanctions lifted or only the most recent sanctions, those that hurt North Korean civilian life, are they lifted? The focus was not Yongbyon. Why are you focusing on Yongbyon? Well, the, whatever, which hang on, this was, this, was, uh, this was what the Americans were going to get. I mean, if you take the view that this is going to be a phased process over a decade, this was a major step forward. If you were assuming it was, I mean, Trump really reverted back to the idea that this was all going to be solved in a few months. He wanted the whole of denuclearization now. Young- well, he's also said that it could take a long time and we're not in a rush. He said that several well, I mean, times. If that's the case, why didn't he take, well, well at least why didn't he negotiate around the deal? Because you don't walk away because of what the other side asks. You walk away because the other side doesn't deliver or isn't going to deliver. 
And it, it all seems slightly bizarre to me. I mean, the, at the moment, we're, we've got the, uh, the idea that uh, actually uh, no deal is better than a bad deal. No deal is a bad deal. Well, then uh, it sounds like um, you're blaming Donald Trump for this. No, I'm not. I think, let's to be fair. There, were, there clearly was a degree of misunderstanding it does be, sound between like between the two sides. Right. I can't. The North Koreans that I talk to, are, firstly, are fully aware that the prospect of lifting American sanctions is close to zero. American sanctions, U.S. sanctions will have to be approved by Congress. Congress is not going to do that, partly because virtually all of the American sanctions are tied into human rights issues. So that is not going to happen. Secondly, in terms of U.N. sanctions, what they're looking for, as the U.N. has indicated in its own resolutions, the reel of history is going to be wound backwards Mm. as the North denuclearizes. Now, if the North gives up Yongbyon, where it's produced all of its plutonium from, I mean, the, the Americans are talking about some HEU programs, they've not been used for any nuclear weapons. If the North was to close Yongbyon and destroy it, they've clearly made some steps in denuclearizing, yep. which means that they are entitled to uh, mitigation of some of the last rounds of sanctions. We can argue whether we go back five rounds or two rounds. It seems to me that the debate they should have been having in Hanoi was about how far back they go and when, not about you're asking for too much, I'm walking away. Part of the problem was that Trump actually wanted a big win because Mm. of what's happening domestically. Uh, If he'd been prepared to settle for a nice win, then he could have got one. But he wanted a big win, thought he was going to get it, didn't get it. So you said that that no deal is a bad deal. Do you think that rather than walking away from the discussions, they should have stayed there until they signed at least something? Oh, I'd have thought Trump should at least have picked up what was on offer because the offer was at least, if was to close, I mean, he would have essentially announced we're going to close Yongbyon back in January. I mean, if you're not going to produce any more nuclear weapons then why are you producing more plutonium? Right. But again, Donald Trump in his press conference said they wanted, in exchange for that, a lifting of all sanctions. Well, I mean, That's we, we will never know unless it? someone was recording right. it. But it seems to me that for what I know of the North Koreans, they're realistic enough, uh, absolutely clear that uh, getting US sanctions lifted will be all but impossible, certainly after the midterms when the Democrats are in control uh, of the House of Representatives. And and secondly, I mean, they're looking about rolling the UN one backwards. Clearly, they are asking for more than they expected to get, but that's the idea of negotiation. That's right, yeah. Now, normally, this kind of diplomacy and and deal-making and negotiation, normally it works from the working level up, right? You've got uh, ministerial people and, and, and undersecretaries meet. and But in this case, you know, the relationship between Trump and Kim very much a, a top-down, or at least it looks top-down. Uh, and despite these months of groundwork laid by Steve Began on the one hand and Mike Pompeo on the other, there was still nothing substantially agreed to uh, before the Hanoi summit. Now, that seems to me at least an unorthodox approach. We're used to summits in which the players know very much exactly what's going to be agreed on when they go into the meeting. You know, it's, well, only, yeah, but I mean, it's that, an excuse to have a lunch and, and sign a document, isn't it? Uh, yes, but I mean, in a sense, I uh, I support tr- Trump's approach uh, on on North Korea. So you think that if we, with North Korea, a top-down approach is the right way to go? Let's look at where, where we've got with all the other approaches. Nowhere. I mean, uh, Obama's malign neglect, or uh, strategic patience, I call it malign neglect, didn't get us anywhere. The Republicans actually killed the the Clinton initiatives. Mm. Uh, What worries me is the Democrats are going to kill Trump's initiative. 
I was asked by Riso Young, the head of the international department, back in July last year when uh, when I was in uh, Pyongyang, why is it he was reading the headlines from the Br- British Daily Mail uh, and, and Trump was actually in the UK at the time, saying, why do you, you Brits... Yeah, hate Trump so much mm. and, and my response was say as a as a member of the uh, an active member of the British Labour Party for close to 40 years I do not agree with a single tr- thing that Trump d- is doing apart from on North Korea, North Korea. And, and nearly 12 months later nine months later I'm yep. still in the same point but now he, he did say uh, in his press conference that uh, you know uh, Mr Kim and I weren't able to come up with a yeah with a with a, uh, an agreement today and so we're going to hand this back to the working levels. So is that is that the wrong thing to do? Well, I mean, I don't think you've got any choice at the moment, but part of the problem was that the working levels didn't work. After Singapore, it was meant to go to the working level. It never happened. But why? Trump promised Kim Jong-un uh, an end-of-war declaration in Singapore. But what about those rounds of meeting that Steve Began had first in Sweden and then in Pyongyang? Well, I mean, hang on, that was very late on. I mean, but the first thing that happened was Pompeo turned up in, in Pyongyang yeah. in July, a month after the Singapore declaration. Yeah. The North Koreans were expecting an end of war declaration. He comes demanding verification, inspections, and uh, 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 an inventory of nuclear holdings. And he was described then as a gangster. So it got off very badly. Uh, and then really nothing... It got better, though. Well, it didn't get better until very late on. I mean, Steve Began didn't meet his interlocutor mm. for the first time until Sweden, which was yep. about less than two months ago. And, and then Kim Jong-un promptly changed the interlocutor. Changing so doctors, yeah. it was hardly a, a raging success. And, I mean, I was in, in Washington talking to people in the State Department six weeks just six weeks ago and they were saying well it takes uh, that's before the date was announced it's a minimum of six weeks just to do the procedural agreements on a a summit and uh, they they had real really very little time to do the serious work that was going to underpin it now one hopes that that's going to be done now uh because this is a step backwards no one can say it's other than a step back I'd have preferred to get some whatever you could pick up from this because I think part of the problem is we're st- there's still this tension in U.S. thinking between those that recognize that it's going to take a decade to do this and those that think it can be short-circuited. In, in my view, partly because of the lack of trust on both sides, rightly, we're in a position that, and it was reported that Kim said exactly that, I can't take this big deal because we don't have trust between the two sides at this level. That trust has got to be built. It can't be. It can't be imposed. Don't you think it's strange that uh, both Steve Bigot and Mike Pompeo, in the lead up to the summit, were both saying very, very positive things? I mean, if you look at the text of, did you did you listen to or read Steve Bigot's speech that he gave at uh, Stanford? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, about a month ago. Well, I mean, I mean, the, the, it, the, it all seemed great going well, in. Yeah, well, that's just the problem because Kim went into that. Into Hanoi, having, I'm sure, read the Steve Began speech, and it seemed to indicate that exactly what he was offering. There's a bit of negotiating around the edges, mm-hmm. three or four layers of sanctions that are going to be mitigated. I mean, the US, when I was talking to them, were talking about uh, what they call snapback. Yeah. You were going to lift the sanctions for a period of time, and they would automatically come back on 
unless they were lifted again. And that was to get around the issue, this is UN sanctions, of uh, China or Russia maybe vetoing their reimposition. They would be temporarily lifted. My understanding of the snapbacks was that they were temporarily lifted and would only snap back if there was no compliance. Well, yeah, but... Not, you, not just limited to time, you know, six weeks, oh, yeah, they yeah, come yeah. back. But what, what I'm saying is that we're agreeing, but to avoid an argument about whether they were complying, they were automatically snapped back on unless the US agreed that the North was complying and it would not be a debate between Beijing, Moscow and the US. Mm. Are they complying? So the US would have control of them being reimposed uniquely. Now, one thing that I found unusual about the, the, the summit, despite the fact that there was no deal and both parties agreed to walk away, uh, both sides, they're not switching immediately to bellicose rhetoric. They're trying to leave the door open for future talks. Do you get hope from that? I do. Uh, but that doesn't mean to say I wouldn't prefer to be in a different position where we'd got uh, or we got a, 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 at least a partial a deal because I think this is going to be segmented. This is going to be salami slice. It's not going to all arrive together. Uh, so, yes, I'm hopeful. The danger is that Donald Trump gets de- deflected, uh, as one imagines he might, by, if you want, domestic politics and domestic concerns. And secondly, that when Kim goes back to Pyongyang, I mean, a number of people will be telling him the only thing that the Americans understand is strength. So there's going to be pressure. Uh, I mean, if he's going to do anything, I'd have thought what he's likely to do is to do a, a medium-range missile test. I mean, he's never said they're giving up missile tests per se. They haven't actually happened. Mm. He said we're no longer going to test ICBMs. So within, if you want, the the legalistic uh, statements he'd made, a medium-range missile test would not be breaking uh, the commitments he's made. I can't see that boding well for anybody if that happens. No, 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 absolutely. All I'm saying is there are going to be pressures on both sides. I mean, certainly from the US point of view, maybe we... They, they've started to ease a little bit the restriction on humanitarian aid. If they put that back on, particularly as now the North Koreans are starting to signal that they're going to have a food problem in, 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 in May, June this year, I mean, that will be taken badly by the North. What role does South Korea's President Moon Jae-in now have to play to try to get things moving forward again, or does he have no role at all? Well, no, he, he certainly has a very important role. Uh, how successful he's going to be is a different yeah, issue. Read his chance? I mean, he, he's got to try and s- smooth, bruised egos mm. on, on both sides and, and get people back to a position where at some stage there can be a third summit. And I think that is not going to happen in the short term. You're going to have to do get these working groups going, but both sides need to be w- willing to step back from where they are now. If both sides maintain their positions, I mean, we're not going to get that agreement. Do you think the only way to have a successful summit is for the three of the leaders to meet together, Moon, Jun- Moon Kim and, and Trump? No, uh, I have to say, uh, I think that adds a complication. Ah. Uh, I mean... At some point, I think Kim Jong-un in the New Year's address talked about multilateral talks, probably extending further than, than China, probably taking in the Russians as well. Mm. So Turn back at to six-party talks. Well, no. North Korea said they're anyway, dead. No, no, not very much not six-party. Ah. I mean, both, both in Seoul and in, uh, and in Pyongyang, the, there is yeah, no enthusiasm for involving Tokyo. It's six minus Japan. Yeah. 
You see that going ahead. Okay. What role must the rest of the world play now, particularly Europe? Well, I mean, one of the, uh, I mean, certainly it's very clear from the run up to the summit that uh, uh, there's an infrastructure fund that Donald Trump was talking about, which he was going to, if you, if you want, put considerable amounts of resources into North Korea. The, the view in, in Washington was that that was going to be paid for by the rest of the world and not the United States. And yeah. that was going to be South Korea probably paying two thirds of it possibly a branch of the Belt and Road Initiative from China, maybe maybe uh, Putin's eastern policy overlapping with, with Moon's northern policy for, for some activity up around Rassong and the European Union shipping in like they did with the agreed framework. But there's a, isn't there a risk of secondary sanctions from the US Treasury Department on that? That, you know, if you're oh, well, a, well, a no, South Korean European was, company dealing with North Korean infrastructure, you could be in, in trouble. Well, no, no, but, but this was going to be after a deal. Going to, I mean, the North Koreans have made it very clear that in the end, the deal is going to be multilateral, in, in my view. There's pressure from from the north because they they want security guarantees that are more than a piece of paper signed by Donald Trump. Now that will that will also involve some refiguring uh, of US troop and military deployments in the area of the peninsula. But on the US side, they also realized that North Korea wants to be bought out. I mean, it spent 40 years and billions of dollars actually building this nuclear deterrent. So it wants to be bought out of that. And that requires hard cash. And that's absolutely not going to come from Washington. Trump will neither ask nor could he deliver it. So that means somebody else is paying. So the equivalent of the two light water reactors from the agreed framework Mm -hmm. will be an infrastructure fund. And as Kim said in his New Year's address, what we're looking for the future in terms of energy, because that's the big blockage, is wind, tidal and atomic power, which is why you've got the problems with, if you want, the highly enriched uranium program because that's what you use because they've got a experimental light water reactor as fuel and they want to be self-sufficient so the highly enriched uranium program is going to be a problem because up until about 20 percent you need it as fuel when you go above that it starts becoming if you want a, a component of a nuclear weapon going back to the contours of what a future deal hopefully might or will look like you know if and when it's signed how do you believe a future deal would be different from say the 1994 agreed framework or the 2005 joint statement well, I think my own view for what it's worth is the only only deal that's ever worked for any serious period of time was the agreed framework that effectively stopped North Korea nuclear development for a short decade. So it seems to me that any agreement we're going to reach is going to be, in a sense, agreed framework too for beginners. It won't be exactly the same, but it's going to be the same kind of combination. You're going to have some kind of security guarantees on the one side, a, a slow removal of of nuclear capacity in exchange for some serious infrastructure developments. So basically, take out the old 94 framework, uh, dust it off a bit, uh, change the font, maybe make it a bit bigger so it's easier for older people to read, uh, put a few footnotes in, and bang, you're good to go. Well, I mean, if you actually look at success, I mean, yeah, uh, the the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland Mm. was the Sunningdale Agreement for Beginners. Uh, it took them. It took them a, yeah, a quarter of a century to come back to what was fundamentally a deal. I mean, we don't have, we don't have to call it the agreed framework, but how else do we think it's going to work? You're going to have, if you want, a slow process of denuclearization from the north in exchange for some serious infrastructure developments that, in a sense, compensates for them giving up 
you know, 40 years of science and technology. Did North Korea not cheat on the 1994 Agreed Framework? Uh, there's an argument about that. I mean, uh, North Korea apparently confessed to... Uh, well, that, that depends, I'm what told. What's his name, Mr. I, Kelly? When yeah, Jim, Jim, Jim Kelly. I've met him in, yes. in a way. Did they or did they not confess to highly enriched uranium processing uh, to, when he went there in 2002? They argued that they said they had the right ah. to such a program. And apparently, for those who are fluent Korean speakers, is the one is a single syllable difference between saying we have a program mm-hmm. and we have we have the right to have a program. Tell you what, with that level of miscommunication from two thousand two, coupled with the level of miscommunication we saw last week in Hanoi, all sanctions or just some sanctions, uh, is there any hope for uh, for reaching well, a deal I with North Korea? Well, I think what we should do is switch the interpreters. It would be much better if if, if you want Kim's interpreter interpreted Trump, so as he gets the nuances for Trump and vice versa. Uh, but anyway, that's a. Yes, I mean, there, there is a real problem. I mean, the agreed framework was, some say, was murdered by George Bush. Well, actually, the, the guy who wielded the knife was John Bolton. Well, and some people say it was murdered before George Bush was even elected by the uh, Republican-controlled Congress while Clinton was under, under uh, uh, was in the, in the White House, right? Uh, uh, the well, they, they tried... Tr- we're not going to fund this, we're not going to fund uh, that. And, and exactly the point I'm making, well, I hope the Democrats don't do the same to this deal. Because be, John um, Bolton was the father of the North Korean nuclear deterrent because that program was closing off that gap uh, and John Bolton managed to get it destroyed, the result of which was the North Koreans went nuclear. I haven't seen any sign yet that uh, the Democrats are, uh, are going to be the same as the Republicans. In oh, there are, oh, well, I think, I'm, I'm uh, hoping you're I right. Think Pelosi and Schumer, didn't they say that Trump was right to walk away? So they sounded somewhat... Uh, yeah, well, that's the problem. They should have been saying, actually, there was a deal here rather than Trump was right to walk away. I think I'm hoping Trump's going to walk back because if he keeps walking away, as some of the Democrats are arguing, then that's bad news. What are your interlocutors like? Are they mere errand boys and girls, or are they actually movers and shakers within the system? I say this because there are some who say that, who argue that in North Korea, those with ostensibly powerful public positions and, and lofty titles don't actually have any power, while on the other hand, those who have power don't have lofty titles and public positions. Well, I think there's an element of truth in, in that, certainly within the foreign ministry in the past. The, the, the first vice foreign minister had more power than the the foreign minister because the foreign minister had to do all of the the formal diplomatic stuff and technically still at this moment the head of state in North Korea is is Kim Jong-un rather than Kim Jong-un so there's an element of truth but equally most people have got no idea who the senior figures are in the party. Mm. They know the foreign ministry. They know Ri, Ri Yong Ho rather than Ri yeah. So Young. So how, how do you know imagine- Ri So Young was the foreign minister until he got promoted to head of the International Department of the Party. Does that mean then that, that Ri Yong Ho takes his orders from, from Ri So Young? He takes his orders from the party. Okay, so in terms of a hierarchy then? But the hierarchy is very clear. The same is absolutely true in China. The people who make the decisions are the party, not the ministries. The ministries deliver uh, what the party has decided. Anyone who doesn't realise that should uh, should wake up quickly, because that you know, uh, uh, that's why, in the sense that you've got uh, Kim Yong Chol actually leading the negotiations. He's a party man yep. in the United Front Department, which is the, the North South Department, and not and and, and, and Ri Yong Ho is very much. Below him. Do you get the feeling from your talks with them that they're usually honest and frank with you? I don't expect anybody to tell me anything. I certainly, when I go to Washington or Tokyo or Seoul, I don't expect to be told everything. There's a difference between being, 
being told every being not told everything and told lies. I mean, the one thing with, with the North Koreans, I say, is you get what's on the box. There's no two-for-one offers. So you need to read very carefully what's there. And for example, in the Singapore Declaration, it's very clear, even before Kim's New Year's speech this year, that they intend to maintain a civil nuclear program. It said we are going to denuclearize the peninsula. Why did they put the peninsula in? It meant... I presume that Moon Jae-in is not going to close all the nuclear power stations in, in South Korea. So if that doesn't count as denuclearization, we can have them in the north. If you've got light water reactors in the north, indigenous built light water reactors, you need highly enriched uranium to fuel them. You've made about 50 trips over, you know, since um, 1997, your first visit. Have any of your interlocutors remained the same or have they all rotated and been switched and replaced? Well, I there's some people I, uh, I've i been meeting certainly for 20 years. Some some people have got promoted and then ended up retiring. These things happen. But yes, there's, there's a continuity there. Uh, right from the beginning, with I mean, I, I do meet the foreign ministry people from time to time, but my my key locus is uh, the party, and mm-hmm. yes, there there are people there I've been meeting at least for fifteen years and more. Now, in the track one point five or track two space, how do you feel your access to North Korea is different from, say, uh, Evans Revere or Joe Trani or Bill Richardson or, or others who have who've been in that same space? The key difference is that we deal with the party. I mean, I don't know exactly how everybody deals with, but all the other track 1.5s that I'm aware of actually relate to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, either the Institute for Disarmament and Peace or the, 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 the American Studies Institute, both of which are very much under the MFA. We have this different track through uh, the, the Workers' Party of Korea, through the WPK. But in as much as people you know, go from party to, to ministry or from ministry to party. I mean, there's obviously a, uh, a connection there, isn't there? Oh, of, co- of course. I, I mean, mean I- nobody nobody in in the ministries is not in the party. But the group that sit around and make the decisions are in the party and the group that implement them are in the, in terms of international relations, in the MFA. What do you think is the single best argument against engagement with North Korea, an argument that you have a hard time countering? The argument that is difficult to answer is we've tried before. My response to that is, of course, you've tried before. We wouldn't be here now if you hadn't failed in the past. But if you look at some of, you know, I mean, the Irish peace process is one example we might use. That had endless rounds of negotiation before we finally got a settlement. And interestingly, of course, the, the North Koreans are much more interested in in Ireland, in a way, than 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 Germany, because what they're looking for uh, is peace without unification. Mm-hmm. Uh, their yes, of course, they'd like to unify. Their view is get off our backs, give us twenty five years of growth at ten percent a year. Where there's no reason we can't do that, and and then we're back in the game. At the moment, early unification is assimilation, and absolutely not. Do you believe Kim Jong Un will ever? Um Come to a point where he'd be happy to negotiate. He's uh, to uh, yeah, to negotiate all of his nuclear weapons away. Or he's always want to keep that one in his back well, the pocket. Problem, a- the reality is, you're never going to know. I mean, in the sense that uh, North Korea, as a sovereign country, you're never going to have the level of inspection that you you could find a single nuclear weapon hidden in a cellar somewhere. It, you can have a level of inspection that means that there's a guarantee that they don't have any uh, plutonium programs or any HEU programs, if that's or, or you're monitoring it so it doesn't go above whatever the the twenty percent. Uh, and 
you can have got them to give up. Yeah. The estimate is they probably got enough plutonium for 40 or 50 nuclear weapons. If they give up the plutonium and the weapons that number up to 45, they could conceivably have two or three left. But I mean, what use is that to them in a way? Now, last week, former CIA officer Andy Kim gave a lecture at Stanford University's Asia-Pacific Research Center, where he's a visiting scholar. And in that lecture, he claimed that in April 2018, just two months before the Singapore summit, Kim Jong-un reportedly said to U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, quote, I'm a father and a husband, and I have children, and I don't want my children to carry the nuclear weapon on their backs their whole lives, unquote, suggesting that Kim Jong-un really wants to denuclearize. Does this account accord with what you've heard and what you know to be true? I mean, well, Kim, it was interesting because somebody asked him a question in yeah. in, in, in Hanoi. Are you in favor, are you willing to denuclearize? That's that's, right. that's why I'm here. Now I think he is, but what is needed is the security guarantees that he can feel safe. Because one thing we haven't touched on is the two existential threats to Kim Jong Un are external, and he's very well aware of what happened in uh, Iraq, Libya, and Syria a month before he took power. The North, having been told, why didn't you follow Colonel Gaddafi? I mean, he's been welcomed into the world by giving up his his rather feeble attempts at a nuclear program. Uh, you know, you the same could happen to you a month before he took power. He can watch Colonel Gaddafi be brutalized on live TV and murdered. Uh, okay, let, let's separate those two things out for, uh, for a second. There. So, first of all, um, uh, do you imagine any circumstances under which North Korea would ever accept outside nuclear inspectors, whether they come from the US oh, or from the IAEA? Oh, absolutely. They, ha- they have had an issue well, with this in diff- the past, right? They have actually yeah. said that nuclear inspections from a- from the outside is a threat to national sovereignty. I mean, they will have to allow nuclear inspections that would detect... I mean, the, you can't have a, plut- a, a plutonium production facility that's mm. not blindingly obvious. Uh, you can't have an HEU facility uh, that's not blindingly obvious with at least an energy audit and the ability to go in and inspect where you want to go. Well, wasn't there a if time- you want to go in and inspect every... I mean, a nuclear weapons are the size of this room. I mean, I actually guarded Britain's nuclear weapons for 24 hours in Fast Lane once when I was doing a, a program with the armed forces uh, as, a, as an MEP. I mean, yeah, six people can pick one up and take it away. That's pretty small. To be able to visit, go everywhere in North Korea to make sure that every single room in North Korea doesn't have a nuclear weapon in it uh, has, a, has a level of inspection that's completely unsustainable. Right. But I, I have um, problems with finding the, thinking of the date, but I do have a vague recollection of a situation in which IAEA inspectors were effectively detained at one facility because they, they wanted yeah. to go elsewhere and the North Koreans weren't happy with that. Well, that's fine, but this is part of the deal you're going to do. I mean, what, was, what Kim was offering this time round as I understand, was Yongbyong is open open house. Do whatever you want in Yongbyong, mm, mm. which is where they produced all of their plutonium for all of their weapons that they've that, that they've tested, that they've got there, and that they will be making. That was not the fi- final deal. Absolutely, I'm not arguing it was, mm. but they weren't also asking for the final deal on sanctions either. Now, a few minutes ago, you also mentioned you brought in uh, Libyan former Libyan ruler Muammar Gaddafi and former Iraqi ruler Saddam Hussein, uh, and, and as I recall from your book, you 
you said, this is what happens when you trust the outside world and when you don't have nuclear weapons. Uh, is it possible that there's another big lesson that these uh, case studies told Kim Jong-un, and that is that both of these men, I'm talking about Gaddafi and Hussein, and if you want to include the Syrian leader in there as well, uh, Bashar Assad. Assad, he's still alive, but uh, uh, these men were ultimately uh, killed or threatened or unseated by their own former subjects. Uh, do you think that Kim Jong-un has any reason to fear his, his own citizens? There are two existential threats to the Kim regime. He's the external one, and he's very concerned about regime change. It's, it, people have even mentioned regime change in the United States in the past, certainly. So his two concerns are the external threat. Uh, the, the problem is that if you look at the levels of military spending between North Korea and South Korea, outspends North Korea by a factor of five. South Korea, Japan, the United States, outspend North Korea by a factor of 50. They've lost the arms race. Every time there's a mm. conventional clash, they lose. That's why he needs a nuclear deterrent. He's prepared to trade that away for solid security guarantees. And he needs to trade that away because the paradox is that the second threat is from not delivering on the economy to the people who matter in Pyongyang. That The paradox is by defending against the external threat, you get the sanctions, which means that the internal threat becomes worse. So you can trade that away. Trading it away is never going to be as good as having your own nuclear deterrent. So it's got to be a pretty good security guarantee. Then you can get the relief that will enable you to grow the economy. And back in 2016, North Korea grew its economy by 5%, despite the sanctions that were imposed up till then. There's absolutely no reason why, and this is part of what the Donald Trump argument, uh, but they're not interested in American-style capitalism. And they're looking for the capitalism of one-party states, which is the, the Chebol, the Zaibatsu, the, uh, the state-controlled enterprises and the rest. They're looking for, if you want, one system, two countries for the foreseeable future. Now, let's talk about your book, uh, brand new, uh, just come out a few months ago, Talking to North Korea, Ending the Nuclear Standoff. Uh, what can a serious North Korea watcher, for example, a listener to this podcast, what can someone who's not new to North Korea uh, learn from this book? Well, I mean, hopefully some of the things I've discussed this, this evening. This is what's in there. I mean, there's also a, uh, there's also a fair amount of stuff that I guess a, a, a North Korean watcher w would already be aware of. But uh, you know, some of the reviews from North Korea watchers have indicated there are some bits in it that... Uh, they found interesting. Yeah, the last chapter, chapter nine, conclusion after Singapore, a very interesting chapter. And here you try to give some advice, but also warnings about th where things can go wrong, pointing to uh, the frightening fact that another war is still possible on the Korean Peninsula and prospects for a settlement. But I want you just to imagine here for a moment that a second edition of your book is going to come out later this month and you've got 72 hours to write a rush chapter 10 after Hanoi. What would you write? I, I think I would, if you want, say this is a hiccup on the road that we need to follow. If at first you don't succeed, try diplomacy. Uh, in the book, I said there are three roads to war and one road to peace. The road to peace is is engagement and diplomacy. The, the, the road to war is, if you want, uh, preemptive uh, deterrence. Uh, the road to war is continuing with moving from maximum pressure to a, a, a trade embargo, and it's also covert action. All of those things are likely to end up in the same place. It's just a different pace of march. Does diplomacy with North Korea, I'm going back to one of the earlier questions, does it have to be at this top-down level, though? It doesn't have to be, but that's where we are at the moment. I believe at the moment we're not likely to see Donald Trump change dramatically, so that that's the only game in town we've got. 
I don't yeah. know what's going to happen in two years' time or, right. or or six years' time. I certainly, if Trump is replaced by another Republican or if Trump is replaced by a Democrat, I think it will be a, a different process. But I would certainly argue with any incoming Democrat uh, that they they need not to do anything but but Trump on this particular issue. You you go from where we are instead of tearing it all up and starting again. Is has been the trouble far too often in terms of uh, uh, North Korea policy. You know, Clinton, Bush, Bush, Obama. Does that mean that forward movement really won't happen until Trump and Kim meet again? Hopefully not. But I don't think you're going to consolidate forward movement until they meet again. But, I mean, one of the things I was hoping from, uh, from uh, Hanoi was going to be, if you want the setting up of working groups to actually process this. There, there are four fundamental areas where you need to do some serious work. I mean, one of which is on denuclearization. Sure. But that is not going to be allowed. On, the North is not going to have that on its own. Alongside that, you want peace and, and normalization. I mean, end one of, of the promise. Well, I mean, uh, then you want security. So it's end of war, then peace treaty. I mean, it's a long time. And the, and the fourth one is MIAs, where the, the, the Americans are very keen to continue to, to progress that. So you could have done with those working groups, working a bit like with Hels- the Helsinki process, where you can swap things across the baskets, making it easier to, fi- to find an agreement. You can make progress in one for the North Koreans and on the other side for the Americans. In his uh, midnight press conference in Hanoi a few days ago, did uh, Foreign Minister Ri Yong-ho mention, like, did he focus on uh, uh, the need for security guarantees? My The reports I saw, I didn't see it itself, was he said that we're prepared to do a deal on nuclear but this is uh, and the sanctions, but this is not as important to us as security guarantees. And so, in a sense, what he's saying, which I think a number of people have known for a long time, this is not going to be... You know, the idea that there was going to be a big single settlement uh, of here was, it was nonsensical. Mm. There are no security guarantees in the package. This was trust building on both sides, yeah. and then you were going to move on to the rest of it. North Korea is never going to give up its weapons without some security guarantees. Now, how adequate they're going to be and the rest is a, is a different issue. But if the security guarantees aren't on the table, this is not the end of the process. But even security guarantees, they're not, um, they're not irreversible. They're all contingent, aren't they? Well, this is, why, this is why from both sides, for entirely different reasons, there's a push to internationalize this at the end of the game. Mm. The Americans want other people to pay the compensation in quotation marks. So, so at some point, they're going to have to have a donors program, whether Japan's involved or not, it's a different issue. From, from, the, from the North Korean point of view, it seems to me that they're looking for some, uh, some wider group, and it may well be the UN Security Council, that actually is going to provide some form of guarantee. Despite the the bad news of the Iran deal, in in a sense, mm. uh, the one thing the North Koreans liked was it had a degree of robustness and resilience. Yep. The agreed framework didn't have. When George Bush said the agreed framework is over, that it was over. When when Donald Trump said the Iran deal is over, it wasn't quite mm. over because the rest of those involved said, no, hang on, it's 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 working. We think the Iranians are conforming to what they promised to do. They're doing some things we don't like, but that wasn't, that wasn't included. I mean, this is the problem. There's a degree of creep 
it, amongst American American negotiators, in a sense. The North has promised to do something about long-range missiles yep. and nuclear testing. It has promised to do nothing about a civil nuclear program, a space program, chem- chemical weapons, biological weapons, or human rights. Now, at some point, you might want to get onto those, but it's not part of this deal. All right, final topic, last few questions. You're someone who has long touted Europe as a viable, honest broker and a potential middleman for resolving DPRK issues. So can you point to any actual cases where Europe has helped to resolve issues up north? No. I mean, in, in, in that sense, I'm hoping they could. I mean, certainly there was some opportunity back in 2001. Uh, we, ha- we had the visit of the Troika, uh, Goran Pearson, the Prime Minister of, of Sweden, Chris Patton, Javier Solana, came in and, uh, and, and we did a deal on uh, human rights dialogue yeah. and, and the rest. And we had our own country strategy paper on engaging with the North. Under pressure from the US, we backed away from that. I, I do believe that the European Union should engage to a degree, and certainly we're going to be looked at as a cash cow by the All US right. administration to pay our share of yep. uh, uh, of the infrastructure fund. Uh, the European Parliament uh, had a policy after the last sort of, after the agreed framework collapsed of, in future, no say, no pay. So... No, we do not expect to set a central role, but we do expect to uh, at least have some say in how our money is going to be spent. And and maybe, like with the Iran deal, act as one of the guarantors. What should uh, Pyongyang-based European embassies do to maximise the productive impact of their presence in the country? Well, I mean, I think that depends on what's being what's happening at European Commission level. And not, frankly, not much is going to happen at the moment because you've got European Parliament elections and a new commission looming. Uh, Frederica M- uh, Mogherini mm. uh, might do some small thing, but it's, there's going to be no major intervention now before we get a new European Commission. In my view, I I would love to be uh, surprised. As a former member of the European Parliament, do you believe that EU member states are cooperating together effectively to uh, to talk to North Korea, or is North Korea's strategy to divide and conquer? The main problem is trying to get uh, engagement at European level. Uh, in the sense that the, you know you've got a whole spectrum of member states ranging from the Swedes who are very keen on on engagement and actually practice what they're saying, through to some of the more recalcitrant countries, the the French in particular, the Brits, uh, who, who are saying no, no, they're 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 more Catholic than the Pope. I mean, yeah. they they've been taking a harder line with North Korea than the U.S. has. I mean, you know, we're we're, we're wondering whether we can have talks with them. They're talking to the U.S. president. Why are we thinking it will be? You know, it might be difficult to send a reasonably low-level sort of bureaucrat to Pyongyang. Last question. It seems that this issue also is is one like so many others that is tainted by the spectre of Brexit. At least, in as much as you've been involved as a European member of Parliament, but you're a Brit. So, how will your role be affected by Britain leaving the European Union in, in less than a month? Will you have to start again with different partners, or do you imagine that North Korea will look at you or treat you any differently post Brexit, or just continue the same? I, I mean, I think there's a problem for the North Koreans because the French are blocking a North Korean embassy in in in, in Brussels at the moment. North Korea services its it, it has diplomatic relations with the EU. That service from their office in London. Ah. Now that, I mean, it's not illegal, yeah. but will be strained to continue. So they're right. likely in the next, uh, in my view, in the next 12 to 18 months to, to move that elsewhere. And so they don't have an embassy in, in, in Paris. The, the nearest embassy likely to function in that way is probably going to be Berlin. I don't see a, 
a personal problem. I actually am Italian as well, so I can ah. I can wave my Italian passport if necessary. Oh. But I do see it would be more difficult for Britain to be engaged. Yes. Now, of course, they are for the moment permanent members of the Security Council, right. so they will still have a role to play. Just it's not like, a European it, role. Yeah, just not a European role. Yeah. Are you on the way to uh, to Pyongyang anytime soon? I'm hoping that I might be, but we've had no confirmation. And will you be giving any advice after the uh, after that the failure of the Hanoi summit? Well, I I mean we have reasonably frank discussions with the North Koreans. I'll be mm. I'll be saying to them what I'm saying to you. They're a sovereign nation. They make their own decisions, like South Korea's and the rest. But if if we're going to be there, we engage in a political dialogue. Well, I, I, I have to say it's been a pleasure talking with you today, Glenn Ford. Thank you so much for coming. I highly recommend this book to everyone. Once again, that title, Talking to North Korea, Ending the Nuclear Standoff by Glenn Ford, published by Pluto Press. And it's also available in Korean. Ah, so the, the Korean version. Oh, fantastic. Uh, is an electronic version available too? I don't know about the Korean electronic version, but English. certainly the English one is, is available on Kindle. Okay, so people can find this on Amazon. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, so please do get that book. Thanks again for coming today, Glenn Ford, and I wish you a great trip here and, and success uh, in your talks with North Korea. Uh, listeners, you can download all of our shows as well as read full bios and show notes on our website, nknews.org. NK News is the leading repository of North Korean research, news, and analysis, and we hope that you'll come and get a subscription there. Please send feedback, comments, questions, or guest suggestions to podcast at nknews.com, our, uh, sorry, nknews.org. Our podcast was produced, as always, by Arias Dare and facilitated by Chatter Carol and Christina Lee. Lastly, a reminder that one random reviewer per week will win a free subscription for a year. So please renew us, uh, review us after listening to this podcast and you might win. And you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code podcast at checkout. And if you like this episode, keep listening each week, subscribe and encourage your friends to subscribe. Thanks and listen next time. <laughs>